everybody, and welcome back to the Garage Gym PT Podcast. Sitting with you as always, Lou and Dave. Um, today, what Dave and I are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about the principle of diminishing returns, and then also the principle of reversibility. Uh, before we kind of get into that, though, we hope you guys have been enjoying what we've been kind of talking about and, you know, using some of the information that we've been providing Um and if you guys want to reach out, maybe even have like a discussion with it, feel free to do that. Uh, but kind of diving headfirst into these principles here, uh, we'll start off with the principle of diminishing returns. Um, so think of it this way. When you first start training, right, you're going to make a lot of progress because it's a whole new game for you. Uh, you're going to see a lot of progressions early on, maybe like, so for example, those first one or two years you'll be hitting PRs like crazy because you're going to be making those gains. But then when you've had so many years of experience, kind of like we've, we've said in the past, uh, those PRs are going to become very few and you're going to have to continue working for longer periods of time just to make those gains. Um, doesn't mean it's you're not you know working as hard as you were initially. It just means that you're going to hit that particular threshold where now you're going to need even more just to make those gains. Uh, Anything else you wanted to add to that, Dave? Yeah, I think like establishing a definition on this is probably going to be the the most important piece. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's essentially, you're going to be making progress until you're not. And then there actually becomes a detraining effect as a result of doing the same thing repeatedly. Uh, this is not to be confused with overtraining either. This simply states that if your program does not change, neither will you. And just as Lewis alluded to, when you are younger, uh, you don't have an exposure, this is when you're gonna have the highest magnitude of making progress, whether that be measured as a overall one rep max, a um, you know multiple rep max, uh, body composition changes, even in the endurance world, this is where you're going to see the biggest percentage of your time decrease as well. <clears throat> and you may be able to run the same cycle two, three, four times, getting, uh, let's hypothetically say you run a 12-week cycle and it's the same exact program, you may be able to get 10% on your one or at max the first time. The next time you run it, it might be five. The next time you run it, it might be three. And then if you run it a fourth time, you may actually see a decrease in your overall one rep max because you do the same thing and your body has no stimulus for change. That, that's a great point, Dave. Um, so I guess the thing here is that as you kind of get more into the years of training, one of the things that you want to start doing is to be a little bit more analytical in your programming um, and your exercise variation, right? So addressing those weaknesses, finding different ways that you can kind of create a new stimulus for growth. Um, but then also maybe even doing periodic like tests and retests just to kind of see is what you're programming, what you're doing efficient at basically moving you towards your overall goal. Yeah. And even like defining newbie gains as well, mm -hmm. the vast majority of it's more neurological and just learning the actual pattern. So you're not actually getting bigger and stronger or like growing your cross-sectional, you know, fiber within your muscle mass here. You're just learning to do things more 
more efficiently and your cerebellum is getting much better at repeating that pattern. So mm -hmm. where you may have like a very hitchy squat, you know, that first cycle, let's say, obviously if you're new, maybe you're squatting 200 pounds, which is not very, very outstanding. Just <laughs> learning how to get out of the bottom and drive past the stick point can just automatically increase you by 25, 30, 40, 50 pounds. Did you get stronger? No, you're just better at squatting. So a lot of times that's, that's why that magnitude is so high within that first handful of weeks of doing something. Agreed. I think that's why like with, with younger athletes, you could, you could really throw anything at them and they're going to make progressions. Um, so kind of moving away from the gym, Dave, let's, let's go into more of like a clinic clinic setting for a physical therapist. Um, so how can we measure or how can we, I don't know, I'm trying to think of how to put it. How can we be a little bit more analytical in the clinic with someone who does have such a high threshold for change? Let's say coming back from ACL. Um, when you have that type of athlete and that person who's used to such a high level of training, what methods or what have you used early on in rehab to start that process of kind of getting back into the, the game again? Because we're not going to see neurological returns necessarily. Um, that threshold for change for them is going to be different. Yeah. Um, one of my big, I guess, marks for ACL and post-op knee rehab is when the person says that they're comfortable going down steps. So it's much mm -hmm. more subjective than it is anything else. Um, but exposing them to as much single leg as I can to to get them more confident with the eccentric control of their body weight. That for mm -hmm. me is like something that really tells you when you can start to increase load, add complexity, do different things. Because like if you have the ability to control your body weight, that means that you can tolerate above and beyond. And I mean, I that's, very, that's very specific for single leg because you can still squat and do wall sits and sled pushes and stuff like that before this ever happens. But that to me is like the, the first step in like knowing that you're headed the correct direction. Now that, that doesn't really happen unless you're doing all these back end pieces. Um, mm -hmm. To even like move this to like maybe week one, month one, uh, I, I really just need them to feel their quad. Um, so we, we went off on tangents last week about like how three sets of 10 and just mm -hmm. repeatedly doing this never changes the stimulus. It never does anything to um, create variation. It doesn't do anything to, you know, randomize the body's uh, daily needs. So like if you're looking at trying to find quad contraction or even like get eccentric contraction out of a uh, out of a post-op knee I, I find myself at the beginning doing as much static uh, contraction as possible whether it be quad sets TKEs you know moving into like blood flow restriction training with doing a weighted long arc quad with a pause at the top so that they're recognizing terminal extension 
Um, and the sooner that happens, the sooner they get onto steps and the sooner that they reach this threshold. I agree. I do a lot of similar, similar things, um, especially with like the initial, just bringing that quad back to life per se. Um, I do like using the, I feel like when you do have that person who has that, that high training agent, sometimes quad sets are just so boring, even just throwing on the blood flow restriction cuffs um, just adds that little bit more stimulus for them. Uh, sometimes I'll do Russian stim with the blood flow restriction training. That way we can kind of hammer that out. Like literally sometimes day one, week one. Um, and they're like, oh, I'm actually doing something like this is fantastic. Um, yeah. One I thing I think is more reining people in with that high level compared to like, let's, let's go, go, go. That's the hard part. Yeah. And this, this hypothetical person who has this high training age is also going to adapt to things much quicker because of the volume that they've had before. So when you mm -hmm. look at this setup, it's, it's very ideal, right? It, I hate using this example, but it's like Adrian Peterson versus a high school girl who's 15. The guy could squat 600 pounds before he had a non-contact ACL. Uh, so like basically, you know, day one, the guy's already full weight bearing, probably doing short and long arc quads without any patella pain versus the, you know, uh, stereotypical high school soccer player who has barely had any uh, introduction to squatting or strength and conditioning. Oh. So like, and, and I guess <clears throat> while we're on that, I'll go down this rabbit hole too. For whatever reason, there's, there was this thought that you can't do leg extensions early in ACL because of the supposed shifting within your knee and like taking slack out of the ACL, but I'll start it as soon as possible to get that remodeling process of the actual tendon uh, to do it as well. And I find that like doing just basic weighted leg extensions also get blood flow to the knee, much like a sled would. And it's one of those places where you can really feel your quad contract, assuming you have terminal knee extension. Yeah, the old uh, open versus closed chain uh, debate. I think sometimes gets a few physical therapists a little heated because they're like, absolutely no open chain whatsoever. Like, why would you ever do that? You're shearing forces. I was like, there's, there's some good research out there now that really there's no discrepancy between the two. Um, you could, you should be able to do both. Well, do you not want your knee to be uh, protected against shearing forces? Is always like my, my argument to that. <laughs> Exactly. Thank you. Like you have to expose it. Otherwise it's going to get exposed elsewhere where you can't control it. Yeah. If you're not prepared, you can't handle it. All right. It's just not going to be good. Um, well, let's, let's kind of get more specific here. So how are you specifically trying to uh, avoid this detraining effect? So kind of going down to what they were doing beforehand. Sometimes we have to have that discussion about, you know, your old one rep maxes, your old times, you know, throw those out the door. They're good for reference points, but like where you are now, we're going to have to basically start from the ground up. So when you have that, that detraining effect, so like as long as that stimulus is now taken away from the person, I mean, it takes how many weeks to lose speed, power, strength. Um, the big thing, I think, are we still using the ACL example or just in general? 
I would say like within your like own like ACL programming, like how are you avoiding them from having a plateau effect? Oh, so I, I will use constant variations from yeah, week to week. Yeah, not not even talking about like percentage-based training because I'm probably not even going to have that conversation until like month mm -hmm. five or six. Yeah. So really to kind of help maintain whatever they've basically lost after surgery, I mean, obviously right out of the gate surgery, you're going to be pretty limited with what you can do. Um, but to kind of avoid that detraining effect, I love to have them before surgery kind of getting into the blood flow restriction cuffs, maintaining as much muscle mass as possible, um, maintaining as much aerobic capacity as possible. With, I mean, obviously within reason, not trying to put them into more harm's way, but like I'm trying to still have them train before surgery so that they have the best range of motion possible, the highest amount of basically like quad mass before they would go and just basically under the knife and then trying to make sure that they have cardiovascular fitness because I mean, aerobic capacity is also going to translate into the healing rates, right? Because if they don't have great blood flow and they can't bring nutrients and oxygen into the area, you're just working against yourself. So like we'll, we'll actually start up a little program and kind of get them. Like I have a, a basketball player who he's a freak of nature. He, I kid you not, didn't lose. Like, I think he lost maybe less than a centimeter of quad mass before his ACL surgery. And like literally as soon as he had that injury, was right in and we were working on blood flow restriction training and he was able to maintain his quad mass. So we were kind of keeping the stimulus for him up there pretty high. And then he went under the knife, had the ACL repair. Um, and we went right into going into training the quadriceps as soon as he came out. And I, I mean, as soon as they told him to ditch the crutches, he was walking without any gait deviations. He was able to tolerate that, that eccentric loading off of a small step. And so he was like shocked. And I was like, like, we're not going to push this. Like within reason, we're going to progress. But like, you can't accelerate a healing timetable. And I mean, within reason, but yeah. you, you have you to have lie like, about your six to eight week role. Exactly. You have to honor that. If you don't honor that and you're just, that's, that's a red flag when people are like, we need to get you back to sport as soon as possible. And it's like, we got to, we got to honor that healing time for those soft tissues so that everything can kind of heal, become solid. But I will try to maintain that that stimulus as high as I can and try to maintain strength within the quad, quad activation, um, the aerobic capacity, even if it's just using like the UBE, getting up on that upper body ergometer, I will have them come in and we'll work on intervals. You want to get gas with your arms? Have fun. They can have ski ergs at a lot of places too. That is also a great one. Uh, another thing that I like is, is just kind of emphasizing movement patterns. So I'm not just going to challenge you in a squat. I'm going to challenge you on a lateral lunge, challenge you on rotations when it's appropriate, like moving in all three planes that that's got to become a really big thing right out of the gates that you can learn to move. And as you have that, you can apply load when it becomes appropriate, but then they already have the movement patterns down. It looks clean. It looks great. Then we can take off with loading. Yeah. I, I think, uh, Assuming that I have like all of the good markers, maybe place yourself at like month two or three. Yeah. I think I have a general kind of template that I like to use for most lower body injuries. ACLs are no exception to this. Mm -hmm. um, I think typically I'm trying to get you on a bike. And if we have like an hour in an ideal world, you can do blood flow restriction twice on two different patterns 
mm-hmm. um, you know, one quad, one hamstring. So that way you're really considering the diameter of the knee. But then like my primary focus is getting somebody specifically into a Bulgarian split squat and placing a ton of different variation on that. So like one week I may have you do, uh, I don't know, loaded on your opposite side. So we might use like a kettlebell. The next week I might have you load on both. The following week I might stick a safety squat bar on your back and have you do like a Hatfield variation of your Bulgarian split squat. But like, I'm also trying to do other stuff behind it that's gonna really increase the blood flow within the knee joint to promote that healing almost from like a, a knees over toes standpoint doing a ton of sled work i really like using wall sits to kind of progress knee flexion going deeper towards your squat mm-hmm. and then we're lucky enough like in my clinic that i can almost like create a finisher on um like a cable capoly uh where like they kind of use like uh centripetal force to like create like an overspeed eccentric towards the bottom of the hole through like a pulley system so that will kind of be my almost like fatiguing them out type of um end but in general like my my main lift here i guess if you will is always going to be like my bulgarian split squat that i'm doing a combination of both closed and open chain things to promote as much mass around the knee as i can I like that a lot. Um, I don't necessarily have like like a specific template I'll follow. Um, sometimes I'll kind of adapt and modify what I have in general, and I'll make it more specific to whatever that athlete was doing um, or needs to do for their sport or maybe their their workout routine. So I'll kind of model it off of what is the need. Um, and then I will pick my my variation. I might change that variation every week. Um, or maybe change the loading pattern where it hits them. Um, maybe make it really hard, like in a particular sticking point or a particular section of the motion. Um, I know as I kind of go from, from like just general strengthening, and then I want to try to get my athlete back into like plyometrics. Um, I want to make sure that they can handle really, they've, they've got a, a good tolerance to a, a slow eccentric kind of lowering themselves down an eight inch box. But then I'll take them into that same Russian, um, the rear foot elevated split squat, I mean, and uh, have them work on just quick drops, quick eccentrics, and kind of work on that landing. Basically, I guess, initial start to that. Um, and then I'll have them drop into that and then immediately come back up and out of it. So kind of taking that single leg and kind of progress that and then I've also used for like two foot, I'll use a band assist for the hopping, just so that if let's say the the eccentric or the landing section of that is just more uncomfortable, just to, just for peace of mind to them, I'll give the band to help them just so they can kind of get that concentric section down. And then we can progress back into the landing if we need to, especially if it's like a patellar tendon. Do you mean like hanging a band from a rack and then having them jump up yep. with the assistance of the band? Correct. <clears throat> yeah, and that could be really good too when you're trying to go for height for the compression. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I also do like notice uh, 
in anybody who has long-term rehab, there is a stick point right at that like uh, six to eight week mark where I do think that you start to get a little bit overtrained and just mentally frustrated with the process. So I will yeah. almost tell people at the beginning, hey, around like this week, uh, you're going to get upset. And I'm actually completely cool if they just come in once and then take the whole rest of the week off. Mm -hmm. Just because th this is the sticky point too, like we had talked about kind of that example at the beginning where you're doing a lot of the same stuff. It's getting repetitive. It's a lot of basic periodization and just making things three sets of 10, three sets of 12, three sets of 15, overload, repeat, add something else to the program. But then you're still hitting a lot of similar exercises. So they just get kind of bored and frustrated. And then this is almost like a programmed deload. So that way they, they don't get detrained or actually allow recovery to catch up. Uh, so you can start to do harder pieces to the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So like one example, I think of a therapist pushing a patient too hard. So I'll, I'll use one of my old patients as an example. So she had had a hamstring gracilis graft um, used to create the ACL, the new ACL. And yep. um, her therapist really didn't have a huge... Um, from what it sounded like, didn't really have a huge background when she was up at school with, with kind of working her back into weightlifting. And she was, she was at so many months out. And when I looked at her program, I was like, Oh, okay. They really weren't loading her much at all. Um, and they kept emphasizing the fact that she's so weak. She's so weak. She needs to keep doing strengthening, keep doing strengthening. And they wouldn't let her go back to plyometrics or anything, which I can understand why. Cause when you look at her her program, it was so pitiful and just, oh, uh, it just frustrated the heck out of me. But the fact that they weren't stressing the muscles to a degree where there was going to be no progression. I mean, this is a college athlete. Like when you're sitting there doing three sets of 10 and there's never, ever any load. So it's like, you're doing a body weight squat, three sets of 10, you're going to hit that plateau real quick. Yeah. I, I think we can all agree that if you're a running athlete, it's going to, it's going to be much better if you have a 300 pound back squat versus a body weight back squat and it's yes. going to serve to be more protective in the future agreed especially when you get into that conversation of plyometrics you know the, the forces through your knee at any given time probably increase three four five six seven times your body weight so if you're only doing body weight you're you're kind of asking for injury yeah I mean, that there's a very delicate piece too, as far as like what's too aggressive versus what isn't aggressive enough. Uh, and for myself, I often try, try to use pain descriptors. So like if it's achy, I'm considering that joint remodeling, mm -hmm. especially if it's in that like one to two category and we're not drawing up too much swelling. Um, but if it's, you know, sharp stabbing, uh, unstable, and then it's producing a lot of swelling, then you're probably on the other side of this positive stimulus. So that's also something where the patient has to be able to accurately communicate what they're feeling. And it'll inform us a lot better. 
I agree. And that's where communication comes into play there. Correct. Because I'm always going to treat you as aggressively as possible, allowing pain to be your guide. People tend to get much better results that way. Uh, but, Mm -hmm. But you do have to be smart about it. And every time that you think that you can do something, I would say wait two weeks before you even discuss it. And then let's talk about a way to lower the gate and do like the minimum effective dose, then keep raising it. Right. So, you know, you might feel like you can jump, right? So why aren't we just doing like, you know, line jumps? Then why aren't we doing some ladder drills? Then why aren't we doing jump downs from a box? Then like you're saying, the band assist where you get the actual concentric and the control. And then why don't we actually talk about doing a box jump to a very low level? Mm-hmm. And then from there, just obviously making it higher and higher and higher. Those are good points, Dave. I think, I think that if anything from this episode, people need to understand is that with surgery and with like, with injury, you're going to have I mean, it's going to happen because you can't maintain the high level of stimulus with training, but it's it's mitigating how much you lose or reducing the amount of uh, time spent away from that, that high level of threshold. There are ways to help maintain the stimulus in a safe and controlled manner while also honoring the soft tissue healing times. Yeah, and they can all be implemented a variety of ways. Like we mentioned, like the ton of examples in the split squat, but even just like a a regular squat, right? Like if you have terribly weak quads, why aren't you doing a front squat than doing like one and one halves or something like that to like where you're actually in the hole twice, putting strain on the tissue and really focusing on driving up out of the bottom. But basically if, if you repeatedly do the same thing, you're going to get the same result or worse. So if you don't have exercise variation in your general program, especially in a rehab program, then that needle's going to not continue to move forward. Correct. Correct. Uh, Anything else you want to throw out there, Dave? Sure. As far as like this whole process is concerned, uh, Mm -hmm. You may not even notice it until you're about 80% of function, especially if you're coming off of a post-op ACL. I can get you the first 80% probably within two to three months, but that last 20% in the stuff that you consider high level, this is where all these principles really come into frame here and having mm-hmm. a strategic way to get you back to doing the things that you love with like adequate time to repeat them and load yourself is very crucial for making a a successful rehabilitation process possible. I would much rather you be over-prepared than anywhere close to under-prepared, which innately Mm -hmm. in your head should say, all those six month timeframes that they laid out in your head may be the minimum effective dose to get you back on the field, but that does not mean it's gameplay. And like, just to kind of piggyback off that, I think that once you, like, once we get them to that, like that, that 80%, like you said, that last 20, um, sometimes it's nice when you have that, that ability to have that handoff to the strength coach. 
who also communicates on like a high level. So, you know, Brandon, if you're listening to this, like this is the only time I'm going to compliment you. So don't even anticipate it again. Uh, but find yourself a Brandon Weirig because as soon as you, or an Alex Trotter, because as soon as you have that ability to get them out of the clinic and into the into the gym more consistently, and that you have you have a great communication between strength coach and the PT, um, it just makes the progress so much better, and it just makes it a smooth sale. Uh, that's all you're getting, Brandon. That's all you're getting. Yeah, but, I mean, at this point too, I almost feel like it should almost just be like them working with the strength coach, and then possibly them spitballing ideas off of you, so that way they get one good opinion not five different ones Agreed. so if, if the two parties don't match each other it just drives doubt in the athlete's head then that can also be very sticky for them as well true so in in my head you know it's it's probably a two opinion max that you want to seek out and you kind of want those to mirror each other uh, meaning that you know you treat people similarly but there are small differences that can also help progress them. Yeah. Teamwork makes a dream work. Amen. <laughs> now, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Uh, Dave and I are going to talk a little bit more in the next episode about the principles of recovery. And we're going to talk about some, maybe some hypotheticals and some soft tissue healing rates and the strains and sprains of the body. Yep. Uh, Hopefully you can find some low hanging fruit there and get back sooner, hit more training sessions a year and get stronger. Hell yeah. But <laughs> well, we will see you guys in the next episode. Have a good one.